healthcare. It happens here, and it finishes here. Two men enter, one man leaves. Nearly a two-word review just said, shit sandwich. I will roll the record up to the last minute. That right there is a Welcome back to the Basement Fellow Music Club. We're here now to do yet another exciting adventure with us here on Chunky Glasses, the podcast. I'm yours, Kevin, as usual, and we welcome you back down to the basement. Except this week, it's not going to be the basement. Surprise, surprise. It's a remarkable episode for a couple reasons. First of all, you know, you, you guys, you heard Eduardo uh, basically kick ass in the Miles Mosley interview recently, right? You heard that. If not, go back and listen to it because it's kind of tight. And uh, and and you've heard him over low these hundred episodes, so you know that he is a, a certifiable badass. And so when he came to me and said, "Hey, my friend uh, Andrea Avery wrote this book uh, about her relationship with rheumatoid arthritis. It's called Sonata, and uh, it is about music. It is about hum- being human. It is about disability. It's about life." Uh, and I think we might want to talk about that. And, and coincidentally, he said, he's like, I, I went to high school with her. I said, well, yeah, let's do that. And this past Saturday, uh, it turns out that she was in town as part of her, as part of her book tour for Sonata. And so we busted out the new mobile gear, headed over to Eduardo's abode and uh, sat down. And uh, I... For once, got to just hit record and and watch a remarkable uh, conversation that you're about to hear now about uh, about art, about being human, about or healthcare, about cats, about I think everything we're about here, and it was uh, it was great, it was phenomenal, and it was uh, now now I get to relive it, and you get to hear it for the first time, so. So that's our podcast. That's what we're doing right now to finish off your week as you head into your 4th of July weekend. Uh, at the end of this, stick around because you're going to hear us talk about a sonata. And, and this, or you're going to hear Eduardo talk about a sonata. And uh, we figured we'd hit you with some classical in the back end of this. I'll tell you a little more about it when we get there. But uh, for now, why don't you get settled in and uh, we're not in the basement. We're in Eduardo's living room and uh, and get ready for a a life affirming a uh, a real real goddamn good conversation about what what makes us all all people and uh, here you go this is uh, Andrea Avery author of Sonata talking with our good friend Eduardo Nunes. Yeah, yeah, no, no, no. I have, I like. We've we've done that. We've practiced now. <laughs> we've we've, you know, we've had I, a few talks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. 
Um, so this is kind of a different special episode of Chunky Glasses, uh, because for starters, we're not in Kevin's basement, um, which means Gus won't, won't show up, although Tiger Lily and, uh, or Fisher might, um, we're, we're, we're hoping that they do. Um, but, um, this is, I guess that, I guess I'm your host this episode, which feels weird to say. (laughs) (laughs) that's kevin you hear chuckling in the background this is eduardo i'm here with my friend andrea avery (laughs) i'm here with my dear friend andrea avery who wrote um a beautiful uh book uh named sonata a memoir of uh pain and the piano um and uh we're gonna talk about it because this is a music podcast and a lot of andrea's story is about music so welcome andrea thanks eduardo (laughs) Yeah, that was super awkward. Um, I think the last time, uh, I think, so So we had lunch earlier this week and we figured out that the last time that we saw each other was probably, because I don't remember seeing you at the 10-year high school reunion. I was but, there, but yes. I was forgettable. <laughs> I was probably just planted in a corner afraid of like straying too far from the three people that I definitely knew remembered me. I was talking to a teacher, true to form, the, oh, the only teacher go. that there showed up. Who, who was there? Ron Frezzo. Ron Frezzo, of course, the man, the legend. Um, mm-hmm. we'll, we'll get to him in a second. But I think we figured out that um, probably the last time we saw each other was we ran into each other at a Tori Amos show at Wolf Trap in 1996. 96. Which is I the was most... there by myself. Were you really? Yeah. I was trying to remember if you were, if, if, if like Jesse was there or, because I, I was there with my brother, Raphael, who and was his first Tori Amos show, I think. It was um, the first time I ever went to a concert by myself. Huh. I liked it. Yeah, was it? Yeah, it's a yeah. good, it's a fun experience. I like doing that because yeah. you don't have to, you don't have to defend your, you don't have to prepare any smart, pithy comments about what you thought worked best. You know, you just <laughs> right, right. Listen to it and then go home. Right, it's great. So I bumped into you in 1996, <laughs> and and basically until we became Facebook friends, if anyone had asked me about you, I would have said Andrea Avery was, I think, was probably a pretty cool person, but I didn't didn't know her very well and. Right. Um, yeah, because we didn't. Uh, we probably rode the bus a little bit together little in bit. the tenth grade. We had some overlapping friend circles. We did. Not... We did. We figured out we were both at Eric uh, at Steve, at Steve Menzer's uh, <laughs> uh, New Year's party in '96. Uh, rager, I think, is not a word that was in uh, yeah. use then, but it, now it, we can apply it, it anachronistically. It it, it, it it's it became one after uh, I believe after I it, left. It almost became um, a very special episode of Beverly Hills 90210. <laughs> <laughs> That's um, uh, the listeners have no idea what we're talking about, which is probably the way it should stay. Um, But uh, but so then Facebook happened. And and for as much as people like to shit on social media and say that it's this time suck and it's just a way for people to artificially present themselves to the world. Sometimes good things happen from social media. Yeah. And and we both got to be like, holy crap, this person is really cool. Right. Right. This person became an adult that I would like to know. And look, I already do. Outside of the structured environment of high school. Yeah. So. Yeah. Um, and then through Facebook, through the magic of Facebook, I find out that you're that you're publishing a book, which is probably the first time, first and only time, I, I'm guessing that Joe Theismann and Elizabeth <laughs> Gilbert uh, are are blurbing the same publication. Yeah, I, I think probably they haven't spent much time together either. <laughs> I'm just guessing. I think on my jacket is there is there one interaction? Yeah, yeah. You brought uh, you brought them together. You made that yeah. you made that happen. We're just working magic in lives. <laughs> and and now you're on book tour. Yeah. Um, so I was at your reading earlier this week, and that was sort of a virtual high school reunion. Yeah. Um, and this isn't even the first podcast you've been on this week, right? 
Well, I did an interview with another classmate of ours, another, mm-hmm. um, who's a physician, and she's uh, she does a medical a podcast for medical students. And so, uh, since my book has, as you said, the music angle, but it also has a, a thread that's medical. Um, she did an interview with me that she'll she'll put together and package as a podcast for her medical students to kind of uh, increase their awareness of the human elements of treating illness, um, as opposed to the kind of textbook medicine angle, but right. the, the lives that you're treating when you treat someone with a chronic illness. So I haven't heard the product of that interview yet. So so let's so let's go there then, because because obviously a big um, a central um, uh, piece of of your life um and and the book is um is your diagnosis yeah. of rheumatoid arthritis which yeah. uh which you received at the age of 12 12 yeah, yeah. right um just a few blocks from here in right. fact at children's right right, right. yeah well, children's used to have a pediatric rheumatology clinic okay. uh, rheumatology joint basically joint diseases and uh you know obviously that tells you that there's enough children with rheumatic diseases that there was this mm-hmm, you know mm-hmm. clinic i think it does not exist anymore i think it's been shuttered okay um which is kind of a shame because the number of children with rheumatic diseases is not i don't think decreasing appreciably but yeah i, I grew up in the washington mm-hmm. area and when i started exhibiting symptoms that my mother wisely knew were uh those of rheumatoid arthritis she she got out the phone book and, and got us an appointment at the pediatric rheumatology clinic over here at children's which was really good yes yeah. And, and, and so what were some of those early symptoms or what was the first um, thing? that Things that could easily be explained many ways. You know, uh, when you're 12 years old, you're going through growth spurt. And so the pediat- uh, pediatrician thought, well, that's what it is. These are growing pains, which I thought isn't, that's a real thing. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I just thought it was a Kurt Cameron vehicle. <laughs> um, right. uh, so that was kind of the explanation. Oh, you're just growing really fast and you're, you're kind of, your bones are growing faster than, that's why your legs hurt. Uh, I was also playing on a basketball team very, very badly at the time. Um, and so, you know, my thumb hurt or my shoulder hurt. My mom thought it was delayed onset muscular soreness. So there were just these sort of sporadic, uh, a joint would flare up and hurt and be stiff and be warm to the touch. Uh, and then it would abate. So it was only when it started kind of taking on a, a rapidity or a pattern that, that my mom started to think, no, there's something to this that's not. That's not, there's not an individual explanation for each of these things. There's an underlying explanation for mm-hmm. all of these things. Mm-hmm. But it was just, you know, um, instances of various joints hurting and, and being tired. And, and then there was this one day where I woke up and I jumped out of my bunk bed and could not put any weight on my feet or legs. And so that was kind of the, that was the, let's that was get like serious a different about kind this. of pain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It was, was disabling that day. It wasn't okay. just, okay. oh, maybe I don't have to go to school or maybe I can go to the nurse. Um, it was, this is a, not an emergency in the sense that we went there that day, but it was it was definitely something bigger. And, and so, just a few years prior to that, you had started playing the piano. And... Yeah, about five years before that, I started okay. when I was seven. I would have liked to start earlier, but when you're the youngest of four kids in a family, there's you know the name of the game is precedent. When can I get my ears pierced? When your sister did eight. When can I sleep over at someone's house? When your sister did six and a half. The half makes all the difference. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I think there was a, I think there was a rule basically that when you're seven you can start the piano. Okay. Um, so I begged and begged and begged, and so I did. So. Yeah, and and so it wouldn't it wouldn't be um, incorrect to say that you were sort of you were kind of a child prodigy. I mean, you I don't know. I I I get. I don't know if I can use that word. Um, because and this is something I talk about in the book, and 
you know, there was an excerpt from the book that ran in the Washington Post mm-hmm. this week, as mm-hmm. you know, and mm-hmm. I didn't write the headline for it. They, 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 they append a headline. Oh, did they say that in the headline? Did the headline writer do well, that? Well, the headline said, I was going to be a concert pianist, then rheumatoid yeah. arthritis appeared. And of course, the comments, don't read the comments. Yeah. <laughs> but in the comments, um, you know, somebody said, I take issue with this. How does she know she would have been a concert pianist? How do you, you know, she, a lot of people are good at piano and, and my wife was very good at piano and, you know, the odds are she wouldn't have been a concert pianist. And I'm, I agree. I acknowledge you, that. And you specifically I, disclaim I that, that in, in the, the book. book. Yeah, right? yeah, absolutely. Um, but of course the excerpt isn't the whole book. And so I just ignored that comment. Um, but I, I also, you know, I have the same reluctance around the word prodigy um, that I do around that. I was going to be this because who can say, right? Right. Um, and when you start, um, if you've read the book Far From the Tree, um, Andrew Solomon's book mm-hmm. about um, identity and about children with identities that are special and extraordinary that they don't share with their parents, um, genius children or um, children whose sexual orientation doesn't match their parents or their gender identification doesn't match their parents or who are adopted. And so their racial identity doesn't match their parents. He talks about horizontal identities versus those vertical identities we inherit from our parents. And and one whole chapter is devoted to, you know, prodigies, musical prodigies. And I read that chapter and I think, yeah, I'm not, I was not like that. I was a kid who was naturally inclined to music, had every environmental support of a music education. My parents valued it. We had a house full of instruments, a house full of records, a house full of, um, you know, we talked that way, that vocabulary, you know. Um, and you had musicians in your family. And I have a genetic component right, of, right, right. of musical aptitude. So I had kind of the perfect conditions to become very, very good at the piano. And I was, an, I was, I demonstrated really early proficiency and aptitude. But whether I can sort of, I mean, it almost pathologizes it to say, like, prodigy. You know, I was, I don't know. You, I, you, did, you did unseat Randy Cohen No, in, I did in not high unseat school. Randy Cohen. Oh, did he not no, go for that? he wanted oh. to be a conductor. Uh, it was another guy named Stephen, whose name I don't okay. remember, whose okay. last name I don't remember. Or do I? And I'm <laughs> protecting him. Who was a senior when I was a freshman who was supposed to be the rehearsal pianist. And I auditioned, um, and we were each given an act. And then he didn't show up for his first rehearsal, but because I'm compulsive, other things that were built into my home environment, I showed up for his rehearsal too, and mm-hmm. and then sort of stole right. the. So stole you can't the job say that you unseated a Tony. Is he a Tony? Grammy. Okay. Grammy, I know. Okay. Randy has a Grammy. Um, and he's on Sesame Street now. He works on Sesame Street. He's uh, he's just incredibly successful. He's doing yeah. exactly what we all wanted him to do. He's, right. Uh, but but he was not my competition for the musicals in high school because he wanted to conduct. Um, so I, I got to preserve my claim on the, the keyboards. But by any objective measure, Randy Cohen was and is a much better pianist than I ever was. Fair enough. That's stated for the record. Yes. It's on, it's yes. on mic. And the reason I was so obnoxious to him in high school is probably because I knew that. <laughs> I was not able to use my words. So so some of the figures that, that loom really large... Um, uh, in the first um, half of this book are your music mm. um, uh, instructors or teachers, mm-hmm. right? And it's, it's Mrs. Feldman. Mm-hmm. It's, um, it's Ron Frezzo. Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, uh, I think, you know, um, I think this book is in some ways a love letter to teachers. I hope that it comes across that way because when you read it and sort of inventory the characters, it's the teachers who save the day. And um, I had incredible luck. I have this, I'm so wealthy in teachers in my life. 
But you're right. The first half of the book really features this pair of teachers. Uh, like Joe Theismann and Elizabeth Gilbert, they didn't hang out together much. <laughs> um, in fact, I don't know if I ever had them in the same room, wow. uh, Mr. Frezzo and yeah. Mrs. Feltman. But Mrs. Feltman was the, the, the neighborhood piano teacher. And so many people took lessons from her. Uh, Lauren Goldberg, my friend, and all her older brothers took lessons from her. My siblings took lessons from her. She was the neighborhood piano teacher. She was also a flute teacher. Um, and she was, you know, I met her when I was a child, so of course she seemed larger than life. But she was this incredibly dynamic and effusive and affectionate and demonstrative, just this incredible character. She had this head of red hair and she always wore lipstick and she always, I never saw that woman in pants or trousers ever. She was just, you know, she was skirts and dresses and blazers and stockings and pumps. Um, and she had been a beauty queen growing up in Pennsylvania. Mm. And so I'd seen pictures of her and this, these curls and these pearls. And I just thought she was, you know, she was just the most beautiful, exciting person in the world. And I, the minute I met her, I wanted her approval and I wanted her to like, to, to just, I just wanted to spend time with her and I wanted her to teach me all the secrets of this instrument. Wow. And she remained a, you know, my teacher until I went off to college. I don't want to spoil the book because we're still trying to, you know, you want to, you want to move some units, some right? Book sales out of this, right. <laughs> yeah. But you know, I remained in touch with her until, uh, until I, until she was gone. Um, and, I I wish she were still around. I, I think of her the way I think of a grandmother. You know, she would like this. This would be a good story to tell her. She would laugh. You know. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, I'm just so lucky that I fell into her care. And then it was, she was complimented at at school by Mr. Frezzo, who huh. was the choral yeah. teacher and the musical director for the the musicals. And I'm not a singer. Um, he tried really really hard to get me to sing, but I'm I'm like a like a like a goitery thyroid alto at best, you know? Um, so, so I had this, I had this music teacher in the evenings and the, my afternoon lessons and my Saturday competitions and stuff and Mrs. Feltman. And then I had this kindly spirited, high energy. God, you have to have a lot of energy to teach music, I guess. Um, yeah. These people are not hurting for energy. Um, and he was this compact, and he's still around. I shouldn't use the past tense for him. Sorry, Mr. Frezzo. Um, compact and delightful, you know, um, teacher who just seemed to have endless time to give and endless coaching to give. And so I think, wow, I really lucked out with these. In the book, I kind of describe them as sort of stand-in parents because I remained in their musical care well into high school when my own parents' marriage was troubled. And I was, I think, appropriately separating from my parents, doing that kind of I love you more than anyone, so I'll treat you the worst because mm-hmm, I know you'll still be mm-hmm. there. Um, so it's kind of had some sort of alienation, separation from my parents. Um, but I could go to school and I could go to my lessons and be in the care of these these great these great music teachers. Well, and and I think the way that comes out in the book is that you come across as just being completely immersed in in music in a way that um, I kept I kept pausing and trying to imagine a kid today losing themselves in, you know, biographies mm. of the Mozart family or of the Wittgensteins mm-hmm. um, or, or knowing um, Schubert's biography as well as, yeah. uh, as well as you obviously do. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Do kids, I, I teach high school. So I do kids read. Yes. Kids read. I am all, yeah, kids are okay. Kids love reading. Kids, kids still appreciate 
heritage and tradition and old things, at least the kids I know, um, kids can still discover a thing and think, maybe maybe this is for me. I think I want to know everything. There is. I have students who are ham radio operators. Oh, wow. You know, if they have ham radio licenses. In, currently? Yeah. yeah. And so if, 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 if kids are still geeking out about that, right. there's probably still stamp collecting kids. Right. Are there still stamps, though? <laughs> I'm actually not sure. Um, uh, but Mail's a thing. Still, right, right, I think. right. Yeah. <laughs> so there must be kids who, who still, you know, pour over the, the sort of the library biographies of, of the, of the musicians that they, they are encountering and learning about. Um, that, I mean, for me, that again was a, is a function of the house I grew up in. Mm-hmm. You know, it was a, every, we go to the library, we had a special basket next to the fireplace where all the library books were. And, um, so if you mentioned casually at the dinner table, um, that you'd heard about a musician, one or the other of my parents or siblings would say, you should get a book about it. You like mm-hmm, get, mm-hmm. see if there's something at the library. Right? right. Right. So there was this cultivation of don't, 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 don't be satisfied with a casual. I heard this. I think I might like it. Find out what else there is to know about that. Um, and, and so I had these biographies of Mozart and, and well, and there's so much. And, and, and so you mentioned that you were reading the, you know, the sanitized, the sort of PG version of those, yeah. but, but, but in all of, you know, all those stories seem to be united by kind of, uh, dashed potential. There's a lot of, um, you know, in the, um, you spend some time on the, on the Wittgenstein yeah. family and the sort yeah. of, and, and Paul, is it, was it Paul who was one arm? the pianist who lost his arm in World yeah. War One. Yeah. Um, that family I didn't encounter until much later. Okay. Um, it's uh, the Alexander Waugh book, The House of Wittgenstein, A Family at War, I think is the yeah. end of that. I think title. that's right, yeah. Great book. Everybody should read that book because it's this, this family that's, you know, uh, Ludwig is the, is the Ludwig Wittgenstein right. of philosophy. Right. Um, private language. The one that everyone read like freshman year right, in college, college and came like, away just saying like everyone needs read. to, yeah. yeah. Um, so that's one of the brothers. And then Paul was a pianist. Um, they were they were plugged into the sort of Viennese music scene. They were friends with all these composers. They had seven grand pianos. And I mean, they were, you know, they were musical royalty. And Paul was a pianist and then uh, went to World War I and, and lost his arm in a um, Russian POW. He, he gets captured and he wakes up and he's in a hospital as a prisoner of war and he's got one arm and he's a pianist, you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but he maintained a career after that. And um, the, there's a, there's a body of musical literature that's written for left hand alone. And it's be primarily because of Paul and his connections to these composers that when he lost his hand, uh, many composers took on the task of composing and adapting compositions so they could be played by left hand alone. I encountered that family then when I had to have surgery on my right hand during college and was music major and I needed to play my recitals and I needed to, to, to pass. I still needed to play. Mm-hmm. And so I ended up playing uh, left hand alone literature for a semester to kind of wow. get through. And so that's when I met that, wow. that family. And, and, and as I describe in the book, I wasn't that happy about it. Like I didn't yeah, want to be yeah. a, the guy, I mean, he looks sort of like the count from Sesame street. He's got this sort of haunted look. Um, I didn't want to be like that guy. I didn't want to be a, a left hand pianist. So because it was because that was a, a less than yeah I didn't or... want to be a pianist with an asterisk after yeah, my name I right, didn't want right, to be right. like oh pretty good for having you know just one hand which is some of the criticism I mean I was no Paul Wittgenstein but that was some of the criticism he got too I mean even his siblings would write letters about him and be like well he's 
he's trying. He's doing pretty well for, for having one arm. But he didn't want that either. He just wanted to be a pianist. Um, so it was a long time before I started to kind of see Paul Wittgenstein as a as an encouraging sort of patron saint of of one-armed piano-ing. <laughs> uh, for a long time, I kind of rejected it. It's probably a, a form of sort of self-hate or something. I just, I didn't, I didn't want to see myself in this mutilated pianist at all. So I think one of the most moving, um, I mean, there's, there's many moving stretches in the, in the book, but I think the sense, um, and it's, it's something that you see more than once, is, is uh, the way in which you forgave yourself for disliking your body mm-hmm. at different points or for being frustrated or mm-hmm. feeling or the, or the feeling that it had somehow um that it was letting you down or that yeah. it was keeping you from doing this thing um to the point where and and i think this was echoing something in the book where the other night at your reading you talked about just how amazing this body is in the sense that it sort of knows when things can yeah. can break down right it's sort of yeah. like oh you're done you know you don't need this for a little while okay well now We'll go in the shop for that. Yeah, part. let's let's yeah. let's let's get the wrists. Uh... Yeah, I you know I for me the most useful metaphor for my relationship to my body has been a family metaphor, and I, I tried to evoke that in the book um, and and build a parallel between what was going on in my body, so my 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 little micro family of me and my body, but also set against the backdrop of what was going on in my family family, um, and so it's this idea that sometimes it pisses me off. I, I'm its mother. Um, Sometimes it pisses me off. Sometimes it mortifies me. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it, um, you know, makes my life way harder than it should be, right? Or than I want it to be. But it's mine and it's me and, it, and, it, and it, it redeems itself so frequently and so reliably that you forget, like, like a family should do, I forgive it and I forget when it's failed me because it's mine and it's me and I love it and and sometimes, as I explained at the reading the other night, it has great timing. You know, it, things don't fall apart all at once. And I, I don't know what to credit, what, why that has been the case. Um, I don't think I'm doing that. My body just seems to know, okay, school's out for the summer. We can tolerate a knee crisis right now. Let's do it now. While your hands are healthy enough to rub lotion into the scars. You know, it's how can I not, how can I, how can I not forgive it when it's that good? And it's easy for a body to behave when it has any challenges, but my body's like keeps taking hits and it still keeps getting me where I need to go. So to, to treat it like a sort of troubled wayward child, but one that I'm never going to give up on mm-hmm. and I love it because it's of me and it's mine. Um, that's been kind of the most useful metaphor. And I have a mother who I have parents who are like that. You know, my parents, I know, on a deep cellular level, my parents are never going to give up on me or any of my siblings. So I don't have children of my own, but I think I've brought over unconditional, we'll figure out how to get through this together. I, I don't always like you. I don't always think you're charming and funny, mm-hmm. but you're charming and funny often enough that you know, <laughs> we'll keep you around. But I'm never going to give up on you. And my parents modeled that in their relationships and to me and my siblings, and I'm, I'm going to parent my body that way. Which, yeah, you know, even now the the way you're talking about that um, of you know it's of your body as a se- as a a family separate from yours. You know, mm-hmm. you talk about um, illness as a as a place, mm-hmm. um, as almost as a and so I'm as an as an immigrant. I'm right. you know a metaphor right. a metaphor that involves physical yeah. distance or, or physical places. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm 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 on yeah. board. Right. So yeah. 
So and 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 I think I think you allude to the this idea of like it's like you know illness is a place that you have a passport to you have citizenship right. there. Right. It's not where you live all the time. Right. Um. Uh. And so you're sort of traveling back and forth right. between that and your yeah. And I have to credit you know um Flannery O'Connor who is one of my mm. absolute favorite writers of all time, uh, American Southern writer. I was just in Savannah a couple months ago and I got to do this whole you know pilgrimage to her home where she was born right under the shadow of the St. John the Baptist Cathedral. And then I drove out to Milledgeville where she died mm-hmm. um, at 39. Um, and she had lupus so uh, and, and chunky glasses. Um, <laughs> there so, you go. <laughs> so you should, uh, you know. Uh, but she is the one who said, sickness is a place more instructive than a long trip to Europe. Mm-hmm. And uh, she was talking from experience. She She tried to go to Europe and become a writer and... Her lupus, you know, she's so sick, and and she came back, and you know, I'm I'm going to live at home with my mother in Milledgeville, and I'm going to raise my peacocks, my peafowl, and I'm going to write every day. I'm going to get up in the morning. I'm going to go to mass. I'm going to come home on my crutches. I'm going to convert this lower floor room to a bedroom. I'm going to set up my typewriter facing the back of a bureau so I'm not distracted by anything. I mean, she's more yeah. sort of sternly Catholic than I ever will be, and don't want to be. Um, but you know, she just. For whatever life I have, I'm going to do this. But she didn't need to travel. She didn't need to live in New York. She didn't need to go to Europe. She knew that her she her illness had her living in another realm. Um, that is exotic and interesting. It, it lets you tap into aspects of human experience and faith for her, I think, that that wellness probably wouldn't have. But it also alienates you. It also takes you away from other people. And so mm-hmm. that's kind of where the, the maybe the immigration metaphor comes into play is that I have, I speak the language of disability and I'm fluent there and I know the kind of the, the, some of the, not, not to present disability as a monolithic culture, um, any more than any people from Latin America are all one, you know, Mm -hmm. culture, but, um, you know, I have membership there. I have citizenship there. I have a claim there in the world of disability, um, that, for example, here's an example of how I might see something pretty differently from how my able-bodied friends see it, and and my double citizenship becomes apparent. You know, on the internet, it's very popular to circulate videos of like a kid asking a kid with Down syndrome to prom, or the end of the basketball game, the disabled kid it, shoots yep. the winning basket, right. and everybody's so tearful and happy, and and they feel so good about themselves. And I don't like those videos. To me, those are sort of disability porn. They're sort mm-hmm. of this disabled human exists so that we can feel good about what, how we treated them. Yeah. They're there to redeem our own sense of, right. Or, you know, this blind hiker climbed Mount, whatever, what's your excuse? Well, he doesn't exist to inspire able-bodied people to like push past the limits at the gym tonight, Right. you know? And so I don't like those videos, but I sometimes find myself, you know, at a meeting or a social gathering and people are like, Oh my God, you've got to see this. It was just so beautiful. It made me cry. And I think, you know, they don't see, they don't know that that's me, that I, I also belong to that group. And I don't, I don't, or the, the deaf child getting cochlear implants and hearing for the first time. Now, I don't claim membership in the deaf community mm-hmm. at all, but I don't immediately warm over to those videos. Because to me, what I see is, you know, really normative, you know, isn't it great that this disabled person is able-bodied now? Or isn't it great how this disabled person makes us feel about our own bodies? And I don't. There's too much of a tradition already of, of othering the disabled. I, yeah. I don't see those videos that way. They don't, you know. So that's a case where, 
I don't necessarily say anything, but I don't, my membership in a sort of disabled community makes me react to a video in a way that my able-bodied friends don't necessarily understand. But at a at an at an early age, you're going to these um, RA conferences and yeah, things, yeah, right, with a bunch of other kids, yeah. Um, and you talk about um, I think uh, seeing a Byron Janice performance yeah, there, yeah, and yeah. that's and so I, I don't talk about I don't the know luck if, of that too. An yeah, arthritic concert pianist, right? Yeah. I don't know if people know who that is. So yeah, you... well, Byron Janice, and I'm not going to do his biography justice. Um, he's an American concert pianist who has. I think he has psoriatic arthritis. So that's an arthritis that has all the joint. I think I'm not hundred percent sure about that. So apologies to Byron Janice. Um, if I have this wrong, but I'm pretty sure he has psoriatic arthritis and, um, that involves skin complications like psoriasis. Um, and he, he developed arthritis and maintained his concert pianist career. He's a very good pianist. He's, um, he was a student of Vladimir Horowitz. So you can trace wow. the lineage yeah. back, right? You can get all the way I back yeah, to Vienna. I didn't, I didn't know that. that. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Um, and he developed arthritis and for a while kept it secret and didn't tell anybody because of that same thing we were just talking about. He didn't want to be a pianist with an asterisk after mm-hmm. his name. He didn't want right, to be a right. pretty good pianist for an arthritic guy. Right, right. He wanted to be what he always wanted to be, which was a pianist. And so uh, he's, I don't think playing, maybe he's playing still. Um, but, but yeah, he you know, appeared in my life in a performance at a, a conference for kids with arthritis. I mean, that felt like magic to me that yeah, yeah. that this, this arthritic pianist would, number one, exist, number two, be um, in my present, in my orbit, and I would get to see him play. And how, how powerful that probably was, even if I wasn't aware of it at the time, that to keep chasing being a pianist with arthritis because I saw that such a thing existed. And, and it was at one of those conferences that you first heard the Schubert yeah. piano sonata. Yeah. That, I, that is the sort of... It's the, it's the, the touchstone, right? Of, yeah. yeah. And yeah. Um, I'm not such a mystic person, mystical person, and I, I'm not, you know... But in the book, I do kind of fixate on these confluences of dates and things and, and kind of beautiful, poetic, magical things that happen in your life if you're just paying attention. Like the fact that I, when my book came out, I gave my launch reading at a at a store called changing hands. Like (laughs) that's so beautiful. Yeah, that's great. Right. That's great. But this Schubert sonata that I encountered for the very first time happened in Providence, you know, (laughs) I mean, come on, somebody's (laughs) writing this. If I, if I wrote that, I'd be like, that's a little much. That's that's too much. But you know, sometimes life is more beautiful than, uh, than we would let ourselves be. Uh, and so I was at a, session you know these conferences they're like everything else you got a name tag on a lanyard you got a tote bag it's always very very cold <laughs> in the, um, right, you know right. in the air conditioning yep. and there are different sessions my mom was attending sessions that were you know about uh, insurance and medical planning and treatments and how do I take this kid and have her go to college if that's what she wants and, you know and I was just trying to meet boys in mm-hmm. the elevators and um, going to the kind of fun sessions and one of them was an art therapy session. And, it, and, and with apologies to anyone who's in the art therapy field, because it was really a stack of construction paper on a table um, <laughs> in a very cold banquet room in a hotel in Providence. And I'm not knocking it because that, there's a lot of peace to be found in a stack of construction paper yeah. on a table with a boombox playing a classical music station and just being left alone to sure, make sure. something, yeah. you know? I oh, still as, can, as a kid, you can invent yeah. universes. Right, with, and like, like yeah. 
I still like that. Just, yeah. I want to just sit down and draw for, I mean, you know, that's fine with me. So I was as happy as could be, you know, drawing and cutting and pasting. And I was set up next to this boom box and it was playing classical music. And this sonata came on and it got my attention. And I uh, lied completely. I, you know, boasted, I can play this. And it didn't, it wasn't really a lie. I mean, it sounded like I, I can play that. That's not, you know. It's not out of my ability. I didn't know it, but, you know, I told myself I would, I wrote, I waited till at the end of it when they told you what it was. I wrote it down and then I went home and got the sheet music and, you know, the rest is history. I've been in love with that piece of music more than any other piece of music ever since. Um, I don't know. I didn't know for a long time why, Mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's beautiful. It's hummable. It'll get caught in your head and you'll, you know, hum that opening, those opening bars. But it was when I read in the process of writing this book and kind of unpacking, why do I love that piece of music so much? And why is it this kind of backing track or this leitmotif for, you know, all these moments in my life um, that I did some research about it and I came across um, Joe Strauss. Dr. Strauss is a music professor at City University of New York, distinguished professor, um, and he's written a book about disability in music called Extraordinary Measures. And it's, it, I don't know that a, a total layperson regarding music theory would would understand every every part of this book because it does get down into harmonic structures and things. But it, it's a really cool and kind of groundbreaking handling of disability in particularly classical music. And he actually analyzed this sonata, you know? And when I discovered that in the process of writing this book, like, oh my God, not only is there writing about this sonata out there that might help me unpack that it, why I love it so much. Oh, Schubert was dying when he wrote it. So maybe that's why it's infused with kind of, you know, mortality or, or something bigger than, than just notes on a page. But you got this professor analyzing harmonically this sonata, my sonata, as sort of a metaphor of disability, whereas, and in my book I talk a lot about how Schubert's sonatas were measured against the yardstick of Beethoven's sonatas. Beethoven, yeah. Beethoven is the standard bearer of sonata form. And and I don't want to spoil it for anybody, but I, I try to help the reader see why Schubert sonatas don't need to be measured against that older brother. Um, that they are they are they have merits of their own and he's not trying to be Beethoven part two. But Dr. Strauss's book actually analyzes some of the kind of quizzical harmonies in this sonata as being a disability in the harmony, uh, an injury or a disability in the harmony that instead of being resolved and sort of made okay, a la Beethoven, mm-hmm. are accommodated. They're, it's it's a new kind of structure is built to make these seemingly errant or aberrant harmonies make sense. And, and it rejects, according to Dr. Strauss, rejects the idea that they need to be resolved or fixed or healed. They can just be accommodated in a life. And, and to discover that a sonata that I just loved as a child and grew and carried along with me growing up and had kind of consoled me and given me something to shoot for musically all those years was being read by this brilliant man as being a musical kind of metaphor or statement of the injury doesn't need to be fixed. My disease is not going to be cured. I'm not going to never have arthritis, but I have to figure out a way to have a life with it in it. Mm-hmm. And that, that he had analyzed this sonata as as doing that too is is mind blowing i mean well I, by way of maybe not maybe not a very good analogy but i think if you think of a of of a beethoven or a, or a mozart or someone yeah you know if they give if they give a melody 
a limp, then they'll spend the rest of the piece trying to reconstruct the leg so that the limp goes away by the like end. Those videos we were just talking about. Yeah, right. right? And, Everybody's and, happy if the disabled person walks again. Right, right. But 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 Schubert is interested in just building a new gate out of the limp. Right, right, right. Yes, exactly. And that's like, I mean, I have, I just think, how did that? How did this happen in my life that I would have the great luck to fall in love with a piece of music that another a brilliant person analyzed that way that I just, I just think that's incredibly, I mean, Providence. Yeah. Yeah. No, it was, it was, I, I, it was not a piece of my, my classical music knowledge is, is shallow. So it was not a piece I, I knew before reading your book, but of course I spent um, a few weeks, you know, just yeah. listening to as many different versions of it do you as like I could. It? What do you think? I do. I think that that first movement is um, just so, and it'll, it'll sort of, um, I sort of joke about having like this sort of sorting mechanism in your brain that sometimes just serves up things for you that yeah. you don't know you're looking for. Right. And and kind of that main thematic statement. Boom, 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 it's just, boom, it's boom. like uh, half a dozen times yeah. a day, my brain's like, hey, did you need this? I yeah. have it. I have it at the ready. And that's case, probably because you, Schubert yeah. is a songwriter. Like, he was known as, you know, you wrote leader. He wrote German song. Um, yeah. He's a songwriter. You yeah. know, he's. And it's in his sonatas too. I think it's there's there's something so quaint too about we were talking about this when um, when Kevin Louis Weeks and Chad Clark and I talked about the Goretzky um, uh, Sorrow um, Symphony uh, mm-hmm. Melancholia. I think I forget what it's actually called, but it's like the famous Goretzky. Mm-hmm. It's a popular piece of classical music. And when it was debuted, uh, you know, I guess the last several bars are just the same chord repeated very slowly and people were sort of stormed out of the theater right in a fit of rage like this is insulting you know and we were sort of joking like how you know what a, what a sort of quaint time that people right. would be so offended by a piece of music that right. they're sort of like honey grab your coat like right. we're not we're not staying for this right. like this is <laughs> yeah or you've heard the stories so, about the stravinsky ride of spring yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Ride. i mean i mean it was scandalizing yeah right? yeah no it, it was yeah. and and a few decades later. I mean, that's the only, so uh, Charlie Parker apparently walked around with a suitcase and the only thing in it was the sheet music to the Firebird Suite, I think. That's so, amazing. That's yeah. like, I, I, you know, I'm a like, I think I can relate because in third grade, I really wanted a purse. I never anything to put in a purse, but I thought I need a purse and I got one. And the only thing I carried around in it was a material girl, 45 <laughs> <laughs> and a Bombell lip smacker. That's that's, that's so I'm basically Charlie Parker. That's <laughs> the Charlie Parker of Rockville, Maryland. Um, so, so what, you know, so we've talked a little bit about, um, the, the instructors along the way and, and, um, and the idea, uh, that you keep coming back to in the book is, um, that you had this, this head start on the disease mm-hmm. and it was gonna, um, and it was catching up and mm-hmm. you just, you just needed to sort of outrun it yeah you're sort of bargaining you're 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 in the bargaining stage of like if i do this does that buy me right um can i get back the six months that i just lost or Or if i give up these other activities if i i I mean i was looking for any reason to give up girl scouts to be honest with you but (laughs) if i give up girl scouts and the flute played the baritone horn um (laughs) not 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 a cool (laughs) no i hated that instrument and i because in fourth grade we were allowed to pick band instruments you couldn't pick strings until fifth grade which I think is a good community service. Um, but, <laughs> but in fourth grade, I really wanted to play the trumpet. Uh-huh. Um, and the teacher, Mr. Rubenstein, you know, I think he was trying to say something else, but he told me my face wasn't right for the trumpet. Um, he meant, like, you haven't had braces yet. You're, you know, so he saddled me with a baritone horn, which 
all it play all you get to play with when you play baritone horn is like big fat whole notes. You're just <laughs> and then you count seventy five measures of rest. Yeah, and you right. Play, right, right. <laughs> Except for at the end of fourth grade, I played in the solo concert and I played. Um, I'm so excited, I just can't hide it. I'm about to lose yeah, control. Yeah. I think I like it on the baritone. So like, burr, 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 burr. <laughs> valve oil and spit on the floor. Burr, 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 burr. <laughs> Terrible. So I think we're going to use that as the theme for the podcast now. Do. By the way, <laughs> Kevin's um, going to sample that. <laughs> yeah. So I, so yeah, I played flute and I played baritone and I was in a, I was on a soccer team and I was on a basketball team and I was in Girl Scouts and I was in went to church and church youth group and so it felt to me like as my head start on piano on arthritis kind of sort of seemed to contract or something. Maybe I can trade some of these other things. I don't know who I'm trading them to. An essay that I wrote in college, I, I, I called it my Mozart God. But this idea that like, okay, 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 okay. Take flute. So, I don't care about flute. flute right. I don't care about yeah. flute at all. Flute does not, there's no, I don't sneak down out of my bedroom in the middle of the night to like take my flute apart and put it together and play it like I did with the piano. Take that and maybe that'll purchase me a little more, a little more time with piano over arthritis. Um, Take the baritone. It's terrible. Um, like a dumb little tuba. And, you know, I, I tried to sort of trade things. I guess what that meant then is I had a basket with just one egg in it, right? All my, or all my eggs right. in the piano basket. Um, I think maybe that's probably something that worried my mom a little bit, you know, that I'm doubling down on the thing that I love the most and that I'm most promising in, but that is the most imperiled by the thing that she knew. And she had more kind of long-range view of my illness than mm-hmm. I did. That I'm doubling down on. And the thing that's directly the thing threatened. That's right. And I would beg her in, in high school. In retrospect, I'm glad she said no, because how would I become friends with you, Eduardo? But I <laughs> wanted her to send me to you know, the Duke Ellington School mm-hmm. so I could specialize and I could major. And I wouldn't have to take stupid, like, algebra classes. I thought they probably have those there. I just wanted, you know, I wanted this investment yeah. in my musical ability. And she said, no, you know, you really, I really want you to have a kind of, regular high school experience. think it'll be good for you. I would growl. I don't want to go to a football game. Football's stupid. Cheerleaders are stupid. You know. Go Rockets. Go Rockets. Yeah, I guess. Rockets. Yeah. It just occurred to me that you're now the third member of Richard Montgomery High School's class of 95 to be on this podcast because Joe's been, Joey's been on too. Joey. As he's known to us. Joey. Joe Lappin. Yeah. Rappin, Rappin' Joe Lappin. So, so, Songbird. Yeah. 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 Yeah, Joe Lappin I've known since sixth grade. Yeah, wow. Um, yeah, so who's the other? Well, you, obviously. Yeah. Okay, yeah, but you, I mean, when you said you have <laughs> been on this podcast. Yeah, yeah. I thought you meant as a guest. Um, you probably scare up another one. Yeah, let's do that. Yeah, let's... who who in the class of 1995? We're coming for you, uh, yeah. Jesse, maybe. Jesse's, uh, yeah. she knows music. Yeah, she does. She and does. she's she got wants opinions. To, she loved our Jason Isbell. Yeah. Um, she loved the fact that we kind of uh, were critical of um, the song White Man in a White Man's World, which has been getting tons of praise, uh, and we were not fond of it. Huh. Um, well, Jesse's got a good opinion. Yeah. She's funny. And what I remember about Jesse in high school too, is that she, you know, my, my CD collection and stuff was all very like dude heavy. I had, you know, right. And she was one of the first people I knew to be sort of seeking out like chick artists as she probably would have said then. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, she, she, so is that why you were at the Tori Amos show in 1996? She was not with me at the Tori Amos yeah. show in 1996. No, no, no. But, oh. but, but is that, is, is Jesse um, the reason you were there? No, the, yeah. Tori Amos. I mean, yeah. Tori Amos 
piano. Also went to our high school, by the way. So if she ever comes on the podcast, she'll only be the fourth Richard Montgomery High School alum to be on the podcast. She's class of 1981. (laughs) She is 81, yeah. And uh, Myra, right? So she, so I don't know. I didn't need Jesse Reigns to get me into Tori Amos because Tori Amos had everything. She had the piano. She had that. That I wanted. The piano, she's kind of weird and owned it, you know. Um, She lived at a, for, for, for a time in College Gardens where I lived. Really? Yeah. I didn't Bri- know that. Very, very briefly. Huh. And I actually have her Richard Montgomery High School yearbook, not her copy of it, but I have the 1981 Richard Montgomery Which the library yearbook. didn't have anymore. Because people yeah. have stolen them. Yep. Thanks yep. to my sister. Um, when my sister was in Richard Montgomery, and she graduated in 1986, she was backstage or something during a play, and she saw some old yearbooks and kind of ganked one. Yeah. And then down the road said to me, oh, I think I have, I think, isn't that song, isn't that singer you like in this one? You can have it. So it's a yearbook with Tori, and then it has also an issue of the Tide oh my with an God. interview with Myra. Oh, my God. Wow. Yeah, and it has the senior, where are you going next kind of thing, and everyone's listed their colleges, and hers says, you know, don't rightly know. Um, huh. So that's like a super prized possession that's awesome. that I have. That's awesome. Um, ill-gotten, thanks to my sister. Um, so I'm interested in asking you, too, because in the book you talk about, um, you, you had what seems like a, an acute fear of um, improvisation. Mm, yeah, 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 um, yeah. You had no interest in, in that. Um, yeah, I was terrible at it. Yeah, okay. Uh, like totally without a net. I mean, it was, fr- it was horrifying to me. Yeah, but, but, but writing, and, and, so, and, and really what I'm trying to get at, I think, is, is, that, is the way in which you're using um, exercising creativity as a writer yeah. right now, because, because as a, um, uh, because you were, you were forced to yeah. switch out of, right. um, away from your, uh, your BFA, right. Right. Um, B- I had a, yeah, I was, uh, I started with a bachelor of music and quickly ratcheted down to a bachelor of arts. So just okay. a BA yeah. in music. Yeah. Um, but, well, ri- but writing is, I mean, I mean, I mean, yeah. there's, 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 there's plenty of, re- there, there's plenty of stuff that comes afterward. That's mm-hmm. not, improvisational but the act of writing is is utterly without a net yeah, right yeah right, right no i uh and i think i talk about this in the book like arthritis kind of taught me to improvise yeah um because it's this great big problem solving thing i mean there there is no script for this there's no uh, t- 10 times a day i have to figure out a way to get something done that i don't that i would have done a certain way if my hands or my body would cooperate but now they don't so i've got to i've got to innovate and improvise a way to get it done and so I think just living with that condition for almost 30 years now, I'm a lot more comfortable in that without a net space. But another kind of a, a, an actual transition between my classical piano playing where I, I was horrified by anything that didn't have a script for me, I was terrible at jazz, absolutely mm-hmm. terrible at jazz. Um, a, lot of, a lot of actual jazz musicians are too. <laughs> so, so you don't have to. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, was when I was in college and I had a, after I had that hand surgery where I played by the left hand, um, I still needed a certain number of uh, studio lesson credits. And, and for some reason, um, piano was, was getting increasingly, for some reason, I wonder what it was, was getting increasingly difficult. And so my piano teacher suggested that I take harpsichord instead of piano. Mm-hmm. The keys are closer together so you can you know you don't need as much of a spread to to play an octave and and the action is easier um but also there are some conventions of harpsichord playing that just you you don't memorize your music in harpsichord um literature which wasn't memorization wasn't an issue for me but um there were just 
it just seemed like the studio instrument I should do a semester of instead of piano. Uh, part of me, paranoid, thought she's kicking me out. She's giving up on me. But it landed me in the care of a, a wonderful teacher, Dr. Metz, who's no longer alive. He died last year. Um, but so harpsichord seemed like it was going to be the, the solution. But there's a there's a feature of Baroque music called figured bass where I was horrified to discover some of the notes aren't written on the page, that you've got the melody line written on the page and then a note and a series of numbers and the numbers tell you what interval away from that note, and it's up to you to figure out how to voice it. And then it's up to you to figure out how to get from that chord the way you've voiced it to the next stack of numbers. And I was like, oh, shit, um, this is jazz. Like, what have I done? But it was, it was in that, in when Dr. Metz said, you, you can do this, you can, you can play figured bass, you can, you can figure it mm-hmm. out that I, I kind of learned a skill that no jazz teacher had ever, had ever been able to, to teach me. And I, I still wasn't yeah. that good at it. But, but you know, that's what you want from a teacher is for them to persuade you that something you thought was off limits for you isn't. And if it's not, what else isn't? But as, as a musician, um, do you think uh, – so let's say there's that alternate timeline um, where there's no RA and, and you're a oh, musician. Oh, like La La Land. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, is Ryan Gosling in my alternate timeline? Is, I, I haven't seen that, so I don't fully get oh, the reference. Well, but um, I don't think it's right I want yet. him in your timeline if that's yeah, what you yeah, want. Yeah. So I, I think can, that movie is stupid. <laughs> we can put yeah. him there. Um, but uh, you know, does that does that lead to you? So so that probably doesn't lead to you writing. No, I think uh, if I hadn't gotten arthritis, your music, right? It doesn't lead to yeah. you being a composer. I don't know. This is yeah. a little bit like the prodigy question because right, who? Right. I don't have experimental conditions to right. set you know my life with arthritis alongside my life without it and see you know, what carries over. I think though that having this love for music and some serious training in music and some training in composition and theory, and then having the expression of that be imperiled. And so I had all this knowledge and all this way of thinking about the world that I need, that needed expression in some way. Language was, was the natural mm-hmm. way to make that come alive, like the way to, to make to make music, right? So part of me thinks if I hadn't gotten arthritis, uh, would I have kept trying to be a pianist and been a passable, or, or would I be some like consultant, you know, and who, who like, oh, I, you know, I, I play Jingle Bells no. only on, you know, who knows, <laughs> right? right? Um, would I have, would I be a writer? I don't know. But then again, if I look back at, again, the family I was raised in and the conditions I was raised in, the household I was raised in, I mentioned that it had instruments everywhere and that I've got a family history of music and genetics music. All that is true of writing too. Our house was full of books. Our, the library uh-huh. was a special spot. Like the best thing you could do was skip going to church. So your, my dad would take you to book alcove and buy books. Um, and I had to write a paragraph when I wanted to watch television. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. And yeah. so, so set aside piano for a minute and pretend like that was never the thing I was chasing, the pursuit I wanted, the thing I loved. It's not such a stretch of the imagination to think that I would have become a writer anyway because I also had a very writing-conducive family and genealogy, genetics too, right? You know, mm-hmm. Right, right. Um, but I think I'm glad I wrote that book and I wouldn't have that book to write if I hadn't had this kind of love with music that then was sort of abridged or abducted. And you said the other night that that you started out by trying to write 
the book that you wanted to read, right. which is which is actually something that that the musicians that Kevin talks to say all the time, or that or right. that or that if we feel that they're not doing that, that we say all the time on on make this the show is like, or... God damn it, so and so, this is not the album that we think you want to make, yeah. right? Um, and 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 I and I I know that you feel like you've yeah. you've done that, yeah, right? I do. I, um, I feel like it didn't yeah. get compromised. That was again another great teacher who said. I was writing a novel that it was not very good. Um, and that's right. That's right. That's what's next is the shitty novel. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah. I'm going yeah. to shitty novels. Uh, <laughs> I think that's the title. Um, and he said, uh, you know, and he could tell my heart wasn't really in it. Um, but I had this MFA in fiction writing, so I felt like I was supposed to write fiction. And he said, you don't have to. You don't have to write fiction. Take what you learned. In, I, I think there's plenty that's novelistic in the book about oh, yeah. scene, yeah. scene and, and forward movement and pacing and stuff. But he said, write the book you want to read. And it was like, that's such simple advice. You know, what is the book I've always been looking for? And, and, and this book, you know, it, there were times in it's coming to be that it could have gotten threatened where, you know, there was an agent who wanted to call it. Did I tell you this already? No, there was an agent along the way who wanted to call this book that you've now read gimp girl. Oh my God! Everybody in the room just covered their face. And, oh my right. God! Right, right, yeah. And I was like, um, "That is right." But this just... was the first agent who had ever paid attention to me, and I thought, "You dance with the one that brung you, right?" And I thought, "So you're walking around for a few days thinking I'm writing Gimp Girl." And I, you know, there's a there's that's... a word doc somewhere on a thumb oh, drive no. that's called oh, no. that. Yeah, but and, and and I was like, well, if that's going to get it out into the world, maybe I can be okay with that, you know. And yeah. I told my husband, and he made the face that you made, Sasha. Like, <laughs> uh, and now we talk. Now I now I tell people that like that book could have been called Gimp Girl, oh, and no. you know, so we broke up that agent and I. Um, and it's God. for the best. Yeah, I wish her the best. God bless her. She's yeah. very successful, but that's not what that book is supposed to be called, right? right? And so it. It, I, I, I retreated from that kind of dangerous dalliance and went back to the same piece of advice from that teacher. Write the book you want to read. And the book I want to read is not called Gimp Girl. I shudder to think what the <laughs> cover design for that book would have been, you know? And so oh I wrote God. the book I wanted to write. Yeah. I wrote yeah. to read and write. Yeah. Um, and I'm really, I, I, my, I love my publisher. I love my editor. I love my actual agent. Because they seem to see it the way I did, and this book didn't get compromised in the process. I have friends who've published books, and they kind of have to make a concession to the market, or they have to tone down this, or they have to add more of that, right? More tell-all, more salacious, mm -hmm. more more dysfunction, um, tone down the kind of esoteric and the smart, and 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 that was a concern for me. Are they going to tell me, eh, get the music theory out of here? Nobody cares about music theory. Are they going to tell me, get the philosopher stuff out of there. It's too highbrow or it's not, you know, you know, just tell us about a dysfunctional suburban family, you know, and, and they didn't like, I ended up in the right hands. Yeah. yeah. I, my life is a story of ending up in the right hands, the right music teachers, the right parents, the right siblings. Um, and I ended up in the right hands with that book. And so it, I have no sense of, I compromised myself or I don't feel any part of me that wants to follow that book around and be like, yeah, that part I'm not so behind, but I mean, every, I, that's, the, that's yeah. the book I wanted to read. And so, well, I, I just loved it so much. I mean, I, I know we haven't, um, we're sort of using uh, this conversation and your personality as a teaser for the book. So hopefully people will, mm. will, will want to read it because we didn't spend that much time going into 
a lot of the it's particulars, just fun to talk but it's about just the, the, the topics around it. I mean, yeah, no, because because there are you know you know when you hear that someone's writing memoirs, the first thing you think is that it's going to be that it's so much of that person, right? Because mm-hmm. by definition, it's about right, right. You're the protagonist yeah. of the story, but actually, you know, I think as as hopefully our conversation has uh, highlighted, it goes so many places. I hope so. And there and it it takes you back a few centuries. I hope so. Because um, I don't really it, think a forty year old. I mean. I feel sheepish saying, you know, I've written a memoir. I've written my memoirs. You know, <laughs> who am I? Yeah. Shut up, right? <laughs> but, but, it's, but but it's but it's not just the story of Andre Avery, although although not. although it is that too, right? Yeah. It's yeah. it's it, it it meditates on on disability, on on music, on on the way Families. that we organize the thinking about our lives. It's yeah. it's brutally Identity, honest. I hope. Um, you know, there there are some really. Um, uh, personal things um, yeah. that that you write about <laughs> that I, I imagine must have been difficult. There are some things about your family that you touch on that that must have been complicated too. The fun thing is that people say that they say like, "Oh, you shared some very personal things," but I really like that there seems to be a choreography to these conversations. Nobody brings up specifics of the the, the personal things. We all well, just sort of well, walk I'm not I'm not it. doing it because I want the listeners no, to great. go out and read it. But no, it's great. I like just this funny dance that people do. They say, yeah. "Oh, you shared some very personal things," but nobody, like at Barnes Noble, like stood up and was like, "Can you <laughs> tell me more about your anxieties around sex as a teenager?" Yeah, right. Like we just right. all agree that that's not going to happen, right? There was I did read a review of it that that sort of led with that. That was like, and if you're wondering, yes, she addresses the question of like, of of having sex and mm. and and when it happens and how it happens and and, mm, and all me. that. And I, I don't know if I saw yeah. that review. That's funny. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but no, I mean, I mean, it is, it is just such a, such a fantastic read and, um, I could sit here for hours talking to you about it. Um, but we're not gonna, although before we get out of here, I do want to ask you, I don't know when this is going to air Thursday. So the day after this airs, the Senate might be voting on, uh, on healthcare reform. Right. Um, and you told me the other day a story about um, at a very early age your mom um, giving you a particular document, and yeah. I, I'm yeah. wondering the if talk. you can. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's funny that we're segueing from talk of sex. Like the talk that my mom sat me down and had with me, <laughs> right, right, when I was a preteen and teenager was, you know, you must never let your health insurance lapse because you have what's called a pre-existing condition, and if you go for a period of time without health insurance it will be difficult or impossible or prohibitively expensive for you to be insured and you must always have health insurance. And so, you know, the certificate of credible coverage, which this is kind of a, an anachronism now because, you know, in the, in the age of Obamacare, you don't need to know where your certificate of credible coverage is. You can purchase health insurance and you mm-hmm. can be insurable no matter what is going on in your body or your health. Yep. But in the olden days before the affordable care act and perhaps soon again, those of us with pre-existing conditions who are not few of us, there are many, many of us, uh, we'll need to guard our coverage. Um, and even if we're covered, it might not, that's not, you that's could not, still be subject right. to lifetime caps, lifetime caps, annual yep. caps, or a state's ability to opt out of essential benefits coverage. Right. Right, right, so uh, my insurance provider can decide that the disease modifying anti-rheumatic drug that I need is not covered. Um, joint replacement surgeries, which are inevitable, perhaps not covered or not covered um, in a way that I can pay for the rest of it, right? So, yeah, my mom, you know, had this talk with me uh, about protecting my coverage and always knowing where that form was 
so that nobody could could refuse to insure me. And another aspect of that conversation was, you know, I know you're very creative, honey, and I know you probably want some kind of artistic bohemian life, um, but it's probably going to be best if you can get a job for a large corporation. Right. Um, you know, and so look at the way that you're, and this is not, my mom was never a, a dream clipper, you know, or a dream shrinker at all. She's not at all. But look at the nature of that conversation. You're telling somebody, other people may be able to dream for that. Other people may be able to go creative or be entrepreneurs or be innovators or be artists. But you, because you're sick, you really need to hitch your wagon to a big corporation just to cover your ass, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't think that's the world we want to live in, where uh, there's a tiered system of who can chase dreams and who needs to just play it safe. We need disabled voices in music and in art and in commentary and in journalism and in culture and in science. And if, if those of us with illnesses that, that we can live and work with, you know, we're not, you know, I'm, you know, I'm not saying like, I just want a paid vacation at home. I love going to work. I'm a worker. Mm-hmm. But if those of us with illnesses and bodies that, that need care are told, you play it safe, you don't dream, you just be a, a widget or a, you know, and other people can dream. We're not, our, our culture is not going to advance. We're not going to innovate. We're not going to be the best nation in the world. Um, again, <laughs> um, you know, so, so I just don't think that's the kind of, that's not a situation we want to live in. And, and also it goes back to this sickness is a place thing. Yeah. Sickness is a place. I have membership there and perhaps you don't, but you are kidding yourself. If you think you never will look, I'm right, never going right. to be Brazilian. Right. Right? <laughs> right. But I mean, you could, it's, it's not the best time tell to, me become, how. To, to, become, <laughs> okay. to become Brazilian. Right. But, but, but these people who think like, oh, sick people, why should I pay for those sick people? They, they should be in high risk pools because they, 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 they need that. And I don't need that. Do you think there is something protecting you from being hit by a truck tomorrow mm-hmm. or being shot at a concert tomorrow, right. you know, or developing cancer tomorrow or developing diabetes? Like all of us, it's the only kind of of the sort of protected identities that you talk about, like diversity and inclusivity stuff that, that any of us could join at any time. And if you live long enough, you're probably going to develop a chronic illness or a disability. Mm-hmm. And so this othering of those people should have to pay for that. Why should I pay for them? Well, the answer to that is because we're all knitted together and because I pay for your military, right. you know, and you should pay for my right. Synthroid. It's a deal, right? So, so I don't like this stratified kind of the othering of, of sick people. And I'm really very, very, very concerned about the, the health care bill. And I've been calling and tweeting at um, Jeff Flake, who's a senator from Arizona where mm-hmm. I live. Um, I have not tweeted at or called John McCain because like a lot of America, I've given up on John McCain. Um, yeah, yeah, he's uh, he's outlived his utility, I think. Yeah, at the, at the end of that <laughs> question, at the end of the Comey thing, when they said, you know, the senator's time has expired, it was like, <laughs> oh, yeah. in more ways than one, right. friend. That's like, right. Um, That's right. But yeah, you know, I think, yeah. I think, I think brother might have a pre-existing condition of his own right now. Yeah. Um, so anyway, uh, it's, it's a really dire situation for that. And, and I really want Jeff Flake to let me tell him what, in case he is laboring under the delusion that sick people are just um, shut-ins and uh, people bilking the system, I would like to tell him about how hard I work to educate 
children and mm-hmm. and that I'm a, a, a proud and I think of a, a, a product of the state university in his state three times over. Like I work really hard and I give a lot back and it's fair that I be covered in a way that allows me to keep contributing to the economy and contributing mm-hmm. to culture and not be conscripted to um, just safe, or sickness and it's just not it's just not it's just not right yeah. so if, in case you're listening jeff flake you think he, jeff flake he, is listening he's 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 emailed kevin a couple times because he disagreed with our take on uh no kidding the is that true metallic album that's oh, not true oh, oh. that's not true yeah that, nothing about that guy screams metallica <laughs> yeah um <laughs> let's do it yeah um in okay so now for real to wrap this up because we've we've touched mm-hmm. on music right we've touched on Policy and um, and illness, mm-hmm. frankly, and these are all things that are firmly in the chunky glasses uh, wheelhouse. <laughs> We're missing cats. Oh, so, <laughs> so yeah. to end, to end on a positive note, yeah. um, and 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 also thank you for all the all the things you just said because I I didn't have any I, there's I can't say any of that better than, than the way you just put it. Um, so tell us about tell us about your cats. Okay, quickly. I love my cats. <laughs> I'm totally a cat. As if nothing about this scream cat lady. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, just a, just a cat lady. I have three cats, and they are all special in their unique ways, mm-hmm. and I don't have a favorite. But let's talk about the youngest cat. Let's, let's who talk is, about. Um, a polydactyl. So he's a freak. He's yeah. a mutant. He's got six extra toes, and he can hold a pen, but he can't do anything with it. Um, <laughs> and he is named, um, well, his full name mm-hmm. is Toe Theisman. Yep. And his, he shares a birthday with Joe Theisman, um, <laughs> September 9th. Um, and and we call him Toby. Toby. Which funny story? Mm-hmm. Just I was at lunch with Joe Theismann uh, last yeah. Wednesday. This is true. <laughs> and I said to him because the conversation got well, got a little iffy politically, and then and then it got a little awkward. And so I said, "Hey, Joe Theismann, I named my cat after you." <laughs> and he said, "What?" Uh, I said, "Well, his name is Toe Theismann because he's got six extra toes. He's a you know he's a polydactyl, uh, but we call him Toby." And Joe Theismann said. That's incredible. You know, my mother's nickname was Toby. Whoa. That she was called Toby. Her last name was like Tobias or something. And so she went by Toby. So, I mean, talk about yeah, poetry. Is... I mean, I'm sitting there with Joe Theismann eating butter. And <laughs> and I tell him my cat named Toby is named after him. And he tells me his mother was named Toby. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing. And, and, yeah. and, and you know, Target and Inga, we love you too very much. <laughs> but Toby kind of steals the show. And they're, and they're all home with Fred right now? They're all back home in Phoenix where it's 120 degrees. Yeah, it is. Um, you might not be able to get back if the temperatures stay that way because planes can't take. Right, they can't yeah. take off. Yeah, okay. But can they land? Because it just I means the atmosphere land. gets thin, so it's just. Yeah. yeah, it'll just be a little rougher. Right, right, right. Then. Yeah, I'm going from here to Boston and New York, so that'll give Phoenix a little time to cool off. Nice. I won't be home for a week, but yeah. And my father, who you know, if you've read the book, you know that my father and I have a great relationship. But he mm-hmm. does. He appears sometimes to not have met me, and so he said yesterday, <laughs> "Oh, so hot in Phoenix. I think they're going to have rolling blackouts. I really worry about your cat's health and safety." Like, <laughs> Dad, Thanks, do Dad. you know that the locus of my anxieties when I travel is my cats? Like, <laughs> I, I, I can look at my home alarm on my phone just to catch glimpses of my cats. Yeah, yeah. Like, why would you say that to me? <laughs> and he's like, what? I didn't know. You know so um, let's so, knock on uh, Yeah, wood. we're knocking on wood. Um, on that perfect note, we're going to have a ton of links in the show notes Thanks. to Andrea's Twitter. You have a public Facebook 
I do. I have 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 Andrea Avery author. And that's where the photos have makeup. And then on my personal Facebook, it's just It's just just us hanging out. Yeah. Yeah. Pajama pants and Nutella on my face. So we'll have a ton of links in the show notes. We'll have the Washington Post excerpt that you mentioned. We'll have links to Amazon and all that or wherever you buy your books from. Your local um, independent bookseller, I hope. Yeah. So check out Andrea on social media because she's a delight there. Oh, thanks. And check out her book. Thank you for having me. This was so much fun. This was was, was a blast. name of the book is Sonata. Thank you to Andrea for, for hanging out. Uh, we actually got to walk out back. And uh, something about uh, Water and his wife, Sasha, that you might not know is that they are huge cat lovers. That's part of the reason we get along so well. And they um, they feed a uh, sort of a colony of cats out back at their place. And so it, it just happened to be feeding time. And we got to go outside and meet about like 15 cats. And it was amazing, and it was uh, it was as human um, as this conversation was as this book is. I uh, I bought this in digital. I would suggest maybe buy it in physical. Let me leave it laying around on your coffee table, and when people ask, say first of all, pick it up, read it, lend it to them, and then and then after they've read it, send them here, and you will hear the author speak about. Everything is so magical and so perfect and human about this this uh, this book and this memoir. Uh, and uh, yeah, sometimes like great art happens, and and this is one of those times. So thanks to Andrea, thanks to Eduardo. Before we get out of here this week, uh, we're gonna do something a little crazy for maybe all you people who think we're an indie rock podcast. We're going to hit you with some classical music. Now, you heard them talking about a sonata, which literally just means a thing that's played as opposed to a song. And you heard them talking about that and and how this sort of plays a theme in the book. I've started to get into it a little bit, and I'm not going to spoil it, but, but uh, you know, it involves one of the, what we consider now, the greatest composers of all time, Franz Schubert. Uh, this is a guy who, by age 32, had uh, uh, composed over 600 works <laughs> and and um, a couple symphonies and maybe 50 or 60 just random pieces. I don't know. You know, you just toss them off you know, and get like 700, 800 songs out of it. Uh, he was he was the boss. He was the man. And he was he wasn't really recognized until after he died. But he was recognized. And so what we have uh, here for you now is is one of his works as performed by Vladimir Horowitz uh, at a performance at Carnegie Hall in 1953. And this is uh, the second movement, the Andante Sustenato, which means sustained meh. <laughs> it doesn't. It means sustained uh, medium. But... Um, it is uh, actually sustained awesome. You know, I've said I, I'm a big fan of the uh, John Williams scores here, and uh, listening to this today, I thought to myself, "Yeah, this sounds a lot like the ET soundtrack." Put it on, so it does. So, 
you draw your own conclusions. Here, here you go. Here comes eight minutes of classical music for your ass. This piano, sonato, and B flat major, uh, D nine sixty. Movement two, Andante sustenuto.
Hey kids, how's that classical music treating you? Yeah, it's pretty good, right? You um, you know, you have the entire history of music at your fingertips if you have uh, a Spotify or an Apple Music or a Deezer account. You can you can go out and find this stuff. We'll put a link in the show notes to this particular album. But this is this is what made everything. People heard this, and then people heard. The people heard this, and the people heard the people heard this, and the people the people heard this, and then you end up with Nine Inch Nails on Twin Peaks. All I'm saying is it's all connected, and uh, and that's a good thing. But you know, you can always dig back in to whatever era you like. Um, yeah, dig it the most, babies. That is our podcast uh, for for this Thursday and our podcast for this week. Uh, once again, we thank uh, Andrea and, and Warno for, for killing it here. Uh, if you liked what you heard, you can subscribe to us on iTunes. We are up there. You can leave us a message or rating as well. That always helps out, lets us know how we're doing. Uh, you can also listen to us on Google Play, Mixcloud, or Stitcher. You can listen to us on the site always at www.chunkyglasses.com. You can also. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at, at Chunky Glasses. Uh, if you, right now, if you uh, tune into the Instagram feed, you're going to see a lot of, of the work of Matt Condon and Mauricio Castro. They're out there every night shooting shows, and so you're going to see a lot of that. And, and I'll be honest right now, like if you're, if you're tuning in the Twitter feed, uh, you're going to see a lot of uh, uh, talk about this, this health care bill disaster the AHCA uh, because we are firm believers here that if you have a platform you you, you will use it uh, sure we have a brand but uh, our brand may be uh, trying not to be an asshole and trying to make sure that, that we all survive so you're going to see uh, a, and we touched on this at the end of the podcast uh, a lot of uh, links to not just what we do but uh, what people who are doing their own art in in trying to save us from a a GOP uh, apocalypse where nobody can afford health care and only the rich survive. And look guys, let's get real. We've all seen that movie. You know what happens in the end? All the people rise up and they eat the rich. And uh yeah, so just leave that leave that hanging out there, and it is what it is. So uh, that's it. We are out of here. We're gonna be back next week. It is Fourth of July, uh, celebrating the birth of our nation. And we always have great fireworks here in DC. Here, here at HQ, we always have great hot dogs. Uh, but on that Monday, we're going to have a great podcast for you. Talking about Roger Waters' new album, Is This the Life We Really Want? Special guests, Michael Kentoff from the Caribbean and Casey Ray is back. Uh, we have a, uh, it's, it's, it goes long, but it, man, it's so fucking worth it. Uh, and then, uh, rounding out that week, I think, uh, we're going to do a little OK Computer. 20 years since that art bomb went off and it is uh, it's hard to believe that it's still um, what it speaks to is still <laughs> horrifying it's completely horrifying um, so um, I hope 
you all have a great holiday weekend and spend it with people you love and admire. Uh, we'll be back on Monday. Until then, be good to your ears, but be better to your people. Talk to you soon. Oh, <laughs> 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 <laughs>